Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, Andrew Muller muses on the art of queuing. As the queue grew, it became an attraction in itself. People spoke in all seriousness of going to see the queue. Plus, we look at the importance of political jingles in Brazil. Faz um coração grandão, desenrola, o Brasil tem jeito. E faz o L, faz um coração grandão, desenrola. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show looking at the queue for Queen Elizabeth II funeral. What does it say about British identity? Here's Andrew Muller with more. All nations burnish an idealized version of a national character. It's never entirely accurate, but it's never entirely inaccurate, at least in as much that it is telling which qualities a given people boasts of having, even if they actually don't have them. The British think of themselves, certainly enjoy describing themselves, as a nation of great cures. We love a queue, the British titter to themselves, almost as if the concept of waiting in line for one's turn was a concept unheard of elsewhere. It's not just that, though. The queue embodies a number of virtues ostentatiously valued by the British in the breach, if not always the observance. Patience, stoicism, fair play. So it seems kind of fitting that one expression of mourning of Queen Elizabeth II was a queue, specifically the queue to witness the lying in state of the late monarch in Westminster Hall. It was a queue of unarguably impressive proportions. The impressiveness of it at any given moment could be gleaned from the helpful live online queue tracker furnished by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Much of the route amounted to an extremely slow-moving tour of the south bank of the River Thames, from Southwark Park under Tower Bridge and the less picturesque bridges subsequent to that, past the Tate Modern and the brutalist Leviathan of the South Bank Centre, before crossing the river on Lambeth Bridge and snaking into Westminster Hall. Beyond much doubt, one of the most beautiful indoor spaces in Europe, hovered over by wooden hammer beams installed on the instruction of Richard II, circa the late 14th century. It is just as well the views were so splendid. Putative queueurs were cautioned to prepare for waits north of 10 hours, and many waited much longer than that. The queue was anticipated, as one would certainly hope in Britain of all places. More than a thousand volunteers kept order. There were regular toilet stations and medical staff hovering. Hundreds of people who may have overestimated their queuing capacity were attended to by ambulance crews. Provisions were made for people simply physically unable to queue for that long. As is invariably the case where royalty is concerned, there were protocols. Quite a lot could not be brought into Westminster Hall. Flasks, camping equipment, flowers, sharp items, flags and more besides had to be checked at a bag drop facility just past Westminster Bridge. There were airport-style security checks. Clothes bearing political or offensive slogans could not be worn. Phones had to be silenced and photography was forbidden. 
No animals were allowed other than assistance dogs. There were reports of attempts to flout this one. It was noteworthy how quickly coverage and discussion of the Q settled on the name The Q, capital T, capital Q. A few chortling wags floated QE2, or the Elizabeth line, but neither quite did justice to the heft, determination and presence of this strange and solemn temporary addition to London streetscape. It was the Q, and as the Q grew, it became an attraction in itself. People spoke in all seriousness of going to see the Q. Not the complete experience, perhaps, but at least there wasn't a cue for it. And the Global Countdown this week was a special one. I've looked at the art of political jingles in Brazil. Trust me, you're in for a ride. It is time for Fernando Augusto Pacheco's Global Countdown. And though Fernando is a long way away from us today, it turns out it's not nearly far enough to stop him. Uh, Fernando, whereabouts are you? Well, I am in Sao Paulo and I have actually a blanket over me, Andrew, because it's been the coldest September in the last 30 years in Sao Paulo. So it wasn't the best September to come here, I have to say. (laughs) Uh, Well, we do have a Brazilian theme uh, for this week's top five, but it's, it's not what's top five in Brazil this week, is it? No, it's the basically the top five political jingles in Brazil. And the reason why, because I think political jingles are so important here. It's, it's You need a good song to be elected. Basically, that's all I'm saying. And it can be all sorts of genres. It, it's incredible. I mean, when I, when I, you know, I've been living in the UK for the, for the last uh, decade or more, and I never sing like really a song, hey, vote for Liz Truss, you know, in a <laughs> funk rhythm. But here in Brazil, it's really... Really important. So we're going actually in a chronological order today, Andrew, okay, so, if so I may. Th- this is in order of date, release date, not necessarily quality. Exactly. Okay, I so, mean the f- so what do we have at number five? Number five is a really interesting one because it's Jânio Quadros. It's from 1960. He, he was basically in power for only seven months. He had to resign. There was been some, you know, political issues there. But his song, I mean, it's still... People know still today the song. Uh, this is uh, the jingle called Vai Vai Vassourinha, which is uh, Sweep Sweep Little Broom, which is kind of an anti corruption song. Let's have a little uh, listen to that. <laughs> I mean, regular listeners will be aware, Fernando, that I, I don't mind a bit of accordion. There's a, there's a time and a place, but there's something quite melancholy about hearing that now, because obviously here's dude running 62 years ago on a platform of getting corruption out of Brazilian politics, and that still seems to be something of a work in progress. Absolutely. And, and and let's be honest, uh, Andrew, it is Brazil. And actually, Jânio Quadros, at the late stage of his careers, he was also accused of corruption. So actually, <laughs> be very careful if somebody's singing about anti-corruption. They might be corrupted themselves. Uh, it's a reasonable bet. Uh, at number four. 
Number four, that's a classic. He's basically a minor candidate. He's never, he tried to be a president uh, six times, including this year. Uh, you know, uh, he's been going on since 1985, I believe. He tried to be mayor of Sao Paulo. He's never been elected to a really kind of uh, important um, role in politics, but it is damn catchy. I was singing to that today because he still uses the song, even though the song is from 1985. It's by Amael. And as he says in the song, he's a, a Christian Democrat. But you will see why the song is so catchy. Let's have a listen at number four. See, uh, Fernando, most of our listeners, when they think of Christian Democrats, will think in terms of Germany's Christian Democratic Union. Can we glean from that that Brazil's Christian Democrats, whatever other faults they may have, are basically just a bit more fun than their German counterparts? They are more fun. And and I think Emael, I'm sorry, Emael, but I think a, a bit less serious as well. I think Emael, he's, he's a bit of a narcissist, I would say, but he does have his fans. I mean, he's trying for the sixth time. Who knows? It might not be Bolsonaro or Lula. We might have Emael in power. Uh, and, and, and basically for this year, he needs to catch up with the times. So there's a funk version of that song <laughs> as well, which is not as catchy as that one. But, you know, it's for the TikTok generation, I guess. But the lyrics didn't change. Well, that's good to hear. At number three. Number three, something, this, this song I have to say is quite beautiful. Uh, it's from Lula back in 1989 when he tried to be a president for the first time. He was almost elected, actually. Uh, and the, the difference between the other two we've played is that the song was performed by very famous Brazilian singers like Chico Buarque, because Lula has always been connected to the artistic class in Brazil. Uh, perhaps the you know the economic elites never voted for him but the cultural elite certainly and he even revisited the song for this year's campaign because it, it is a classic this is the song called lula la and number three <laughs> Fernando, that has a somewhat melancholy quality to it, I would say. It is melancholic. It is beautiful emotion. And Lula La means Lula Dare. And, and, and it's the sense that, you know, he, he's a worker. He grew up in a very poor family. The song is basically saying that someone like him could become president of Brazil. So there's this kind of this very emotional context uh, to it as well. And, and as I said, so popular that's been revisited uh, for this year's campaign as well. OK, so number two, the tension mounts. Absolutely. And this is Dilma from the same party as uh, Lula. And, and it's interesting because uh, nowadays, especially more recently, including this Dilma one, they're trying to use very regional uh, sounds, you know, perhaps to cater to a specific uh, region of Brazil. And this one by Dilma, which is called Coração Valente, Braveheart, is singing the forró uh, genre, which is very popular in the Northeast. It's very fun, lighthearted. It's saying how Dilma is actually a brave woman. Looking at her past, I mean, you can kind of agree with that. Let's have a listen to that. Você nunca 
vacilou em lutar em favor da gente. Por isso eu tô juntinho do seu lado, tô com você lindo, pra seguir em frente. Mulher de mãos limpas, tô com você, mulher de mãos livres, tô com você. Uh, Fernando, on the basis that that sounds tolerably like one of Marty Robbins' weird Mexicana pastiches, I will allow that one. Um, but it brings us to number one. Uh, and I know this is chronological, not, you know, qualitative, but I'm trying to build it up. So the number one Brazilian political jingle is? It's special. It is basically a mashup of the songs from the four main candidates. We're going to have here very uh, brief excerpts and then I'll give a very quick explanation. They're from Simone Tebet, Ciro Gomes, Bolsonaro and Lula. So so this is the sound of this year's election? Yes, very modern, very current. Hit it. Fernando, I have no Portuguese at all, as you know, so I'm taking a wild guess. Was Bolsonaro's the bloody awful power ballad at number three there? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And, And I don't know if you could hear it. There is a sound. There is a sound of a. There is the sound of a kind of a military plane at the background. Of course, it's Bolsonaro, and and it's very much a bit of country music as well, because the country community, Andrew. I'm sorry to say, but they're all behind uh, Bolsonaro in this year's campaign. And uh, Ciro Gomes went for samba, which I think was quite a clever decision. I have to say, as well. Ever since the first issue of Monocle magazine hit newsstands in 2007, we've been photographing the world, capturing stories on film, on the ground, and in the moment. The Monocle book of photography, reported from places less explored, celebrates this rich visual storytelling, with dispatches from the banks of the Rio Grande, Syria's Aleppo before the war, a spectacular Swiss wine festival, and a Greek naval academy. This powerful celebration of photojournalism also includes interviews with Monocle's favorite photographers. I see photography as a medium to tell stories, and I've always been fascinated with human stories and places of conflict are where these stories are extremely poignant, compelling, and powerful. Head to monocle.com and order your copy now and get a fresh focus on the world. You're listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We head to Berlin now, where nearly 2,800 people from 56 countries are gathered this week for InnoTrans, the world's largest trade fair focused on the rail transport industry. 
To find out more about the biggest themes at this year's event and what they tell us about the future of rail transport, Monaco's Marcos Hippie caught up with Nick Kingsley, executive editor of Railway Gazette International, who started by talking about the challenges the industry is facing at the moment. I think the industry is grappling with life after the pandemic, and I think it's also grappling with the problem of success. Um, you know, we, we're seeing increased demand for rail, both passenger rail and freight rail, and I think we're seeing unprecedented levels of government and political support, not just in, in Europe, but, but around the world. We're living in an era that has, you know, the potential to be a real golden age for, for railways, but it brings with it a lot of challenges, especially in terms of delivering on the customer experience, you know, uh, making sure that our infrastructure and technology is resilient and reliable. And um, and I think that's is a challenge, but it's a good problem to have for the industry. You also mentioned that one of the challenges the industry is facing at the moment is, is the customer experience. What do you mean by that? What needs to be fixed or changed? Well, I, I think anyone who travels by rail in, in the major rail markets in Europe or North America, you know, we've all had delays. We've all had, uh, you know, face trains that are very overcrowded. I think there is growing demand for rail. And I think it's really difficult for the rail operators and the infrastructure companies to deliver the capacity. You can't just deliver it overnight. You can't add coaches. You can't add tracks. It's not easy to transform that customer experience really quickly especially if you have you know a, a rapid surge in, in demand as we have seen after the end of the pandemic looking at europe for example what needs to be fixed what do you think is is the list of priorities what kind of things could improve the experience first or best i think that um, there are a number of kind of big ticket technological projects that have been running for quite a few years that aren't making as much progress perhaps towards fruition as as policymakers would like um, harmonizing signaling systems between european countries for example so you can have cross-border high-speed rail truly an interoperable european rail network we're making some progress but it's not as quick as i think everyone would wish um, and then I think the other thing as well if I, uh, speaking as a rail passenger it's information it's knowing if there's going to be a delay to your train you want your you know your smartphone to tell you you know you want to feel informed you want to feel connected but equally if you're a train operator you know there's a challenge there because what you know what about older people what about people who are not so digitally savvy you know maybe maybe not everybody wants to buy their train ticket on an app maybe they you know it's I think there's some real uh, yeah, real kind of day-to-day -day challenges, you know, ticketing, information, making sure people feel comfortable and safe when they when they travel by rail. What kind of innovations do you expect to see in the future that will could fix these issues? What's what's happening at the moment? Well, one of the big. Uh projects or, or technological initiatives that I'm actually doing quite a lot of work about my, myself uh, this week here at Innertrans is uh, adopting the next generation of telecom systems. So 5G telecoms, how will that affect um, rail infrastructure and rail operations? Well, I think it could have huge benefits because you're talking about finally getting, you know, real serious data connectivity between a train that's doing, say, 200 miles an hour and the wayside. You know, you can have digital signaling, you can have passenger information, you can have passengers streaming their favorite Netflix show, but it equally will bring a lot of, you know, uh, operational benefits in terms of signaling, in terms of the driver, knowing the network conditions, this kind of thing. So there's a lot of work being done in the rail sector and the telecom sector to, to make some of those uh, advances happen. How do you think the customer experience could change in the future? 
with the help of design, great design and, and new innovation. Well, there are some examples here uh, in a trans this week. Uh, the, the Deutsche Bahn Ideenzug uh, is uh, is outside in the outside area, and that's got some really funky uh, interiors in it. Passenger behaviour is changing after the pandemic. Will passengers want more privacy, for example, in first class? You know, will we even still have first class? I think there's a lot of pressure as well on designers to make sure that trains are fully accessible. Um, I think the days of people having to struggle to step from the platform to the train, you know, those are things that the industry can and should address. And then inside the train, yeah, better connectivity digitally and better information, real-time information during your journey. You know, if you have to make a an interchange or a connection at a major station, you want to know what platform am I coming into? What platform am I leaving from? Um, and all that information can be delivered in real time. And I think those innovations in those fields will, will be really significant. What do you expect from the future of the first class you mentioned? Oh, that's a good question. More privacy, right? Based on based on what I saw downstairs, a little bit maybe moving in the direction of the uh, of the airline kind of business class model, maybe with sort of seating pods and that kind of thing. I think we're also seeing a trend towards greater segmentation in passenger vehicle design. So the rise of like a standard premium, like a kind of premium economy type option. Um, and, and also more uh, multifunction and multi-purpose areas on trains, for example, an area for families traveling with children, you know, perhaps it could be a little play area or something like that. One major trend, obviously, within the industry is, is sustainability and, and coming up with innovations to create less pollution in the future. What are we seeing over here now? Well, I mean, here at Innertrans, you'll see most of the vehicles that are parked in the out outdoor display area are hybrids. They'll be powered by hydrogen. They'll be powered by battery. There's a real trend to move away from reliance on diesel power to move trains. Um, what I would say, though, is is it's a this is a delicate topic because the, the biggest environmental gain that the railways can offer to society is modal shift. So getting people out of cars, aircraft, high pollution modes of transport and moving them to rail, even if that shift happens and the train is still powered by diesel, that's still a big environmental gain. Um, but I think there is real pressure across the industry to move away from diesel, which I do understand. And I think the industry and the suppliers are, are under a lot of pressure from, from kind of government level and the public sector to do that. So we're seeing a lot of battery investment in battery technology, and, and hybrid technology and, and hydrogen fuel cell and, and that kind of thing. Now, finally, Nick, what kind of experience is it for someone like you working for the industry press to come to, you know, trans and spend a week over here? It's a huge event. Uh, I'll be honest, I absolutely love it. I, uh, it's incredibly stressful, really busy, but um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of my, my team that I've got out here with us. Uh, we're doing some video, we're doing social media, we're trying to cover the whole show and it's just enormous. So it's very busy, very stressful, but it's great to see that the railway sector is still quite nationally structured. So it doesn't always feel like a, a truly global industry, but then you come here to Berlin to Innertrans and it really, really does. This is the global rail industry in, in one place. Considering that we have some 2,500 exhibitors over here, how do you make sure that you don't miss anything interesting? <laughs> I, I try not to ask myself that question. That's how that's how I avoid it. I um, yeah, it's very that is a quite a stressful aspect of the show, but I absolutely love it. I know that we'll get some great content out of this, and um, yeah, got a great team around around me. So yeah, I think we'll do all right. And now to the show I host every week, the Stack. 
Monaco's Gabriele de Lissanti visited the headquarters of leading Danish man's title, Euroman. Let's have a listen. It's late August and editor-in-chief Christopher Dahi Ernst is getting ready for the release of the September issue of Euroman, the magazine he's been at the helm of for over two years. The issue's black-and-white cover features a Danish modern-day philosopher who shares his take on how to navigate a changing world. Inside, the magazine's pages are packed with original photography and playful graphics. It's content ranging from long-form profile interviews to tips on what to wear, read and listen as the season turns. Euroman is Denmark's only title for men. It's a household name here, having been in circulation for well over 30 years. I meet Christopher at Euroman's newsroom in the outskirts of Copenhagen. His desk is piled with copies of varying magazine titles, novels and scribbled notes. We sit down in a quiet meeting room and I start by asking him what Euroman is for him. I have always read Euroman. It's always been sort of a mainstay in my life. I basically bought it since I was 15 years old. I've always had this idea that Euroman is your best friend's big brother who is able to tell you where to go, who you should uh, read about, what car you should drive, what watch you should look for, what's the film you want to watch the next, what should you listen to of music. And I think Euromans should be that authority in your life. We should be able to, to take people in their hands and show them in what direction they should uh, lead their life. I want Euromans to be a modern friend that is able to show you the good parts of life I want to create original journalism that is um, both thought-provoking but also can be investigative. I want to be able to uh, not only tell people where they should go for dinner, but also what they should order off the menu. Since taking over as editor-in-chief, Christopher ensured the magazine remained a modern and relevant title. One that makes no compromise on outstanding photography and journalism, and one that, even more importantly, knows its readers and what matters to them. What we pride ourselves with is a really strong emphasis on the visual side, of course. I mean, our journalism is second to none, as I see it, and we are working every month a lot with the visual side as well. Create uh, outstanding photography, use the best illustrators that we can get our hands on, think about visual concepts for cover shoots, for photos in the magazine, and always avoid, of course, stock photos whenever we can, create original photography. Our art director is uh, one of the best in the country, if not the best, Thomas Bredesen. And I think it's important to constantly keep pushing, uh, I mean, typography, the way we lay out the magazine, and not necessarily start from scratch every month, but basically look at each uh, case in the magazine in a new way and how we can work with that to present it in the best way possible. We try to stay relevant by constantly following the zeitgeist in the country, both trying to give our readers what they want, but also trying to give them what they didn't expect. 
our Euromain is, I think, looked upon as a modern magazine, as a men's magazine, as a magazine that has been here forever, which is both a blessing and a curse because, of course, it's nice to have a well-established brand that basically everyone knows. I mean, we never get a no if we ask someone if he wants to be on the cover of the magazine. But it's also something we, we should not rest on our laurels. We should constantly evolve, constantly develop, constantly ask ourselves to be better and to, I wouldn't say reinvent ourselves, but we should constantly change it a little bit to follow the way that society uh, evolves. Christopher acknowledges the risk of running a magazine that's too Copenhagen-centric. And while covering the capital's trend-defining fashion scene and exceptional gastronomic offering is key, he recognizes the importance of publishing a magazine that offers something for everyone across Denmark. Sometimes we are accused of being too uh, centric about Copenhagen, but I'm doing my best to be a magazine that is covering the entire country and that knows just as well what's going on in the remote parts of Jutland than what is going on in Copenhagen. Of course, it's based in Copenhagen. We live in Copenhagen because it's easiest for us, but we have freelancers across the entire country and we uh, we try not to write too much about what is going on here compared to what is going on in, uh, in other parts of the country. We have, uh, of course, a strong readership in the big cities Copenhagen, Aarhus, Odense, Aalborg, the four big cities in, in Denmark. But we also know that uh, that the smaller cities in Denmark, we have a really strong distribution there. Basically all supermarkets, kiosks, you can get Euromain because it's a mainstay on the magazine market, on the shelves. And it's a really strong brand in Denmark, so everyone knows it. And we are trying our best not to become too exclusive and too sort of far away from the average Dane, if I can say that. These days, Christopher is working on expanding Euroman beyond the monthly issue, making the most of the strength of the brand on a national level. He's looking into everything from expanding the offering of seasonal newspapers to recording podcasts and shooting long-form videos. It's a matter of where we want to take our brand and no one is telling us where we should go. So it's it's just a matter of how big we want to dream it. And I mean, it could be a traveling club. It could be a, a supper club where we, uh, where we gather people to eat. It could be an event space. It could be a pop-up store. There's so many different areas where Euromain could play a role in the modern consumer's mind that should not only be a magazine, but could be so much more. From the newsroom of Euroman in Copenhagen, I'm Gabriele Delisanti. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator. Time now for Meet the Writers with Georgina Godwin. This time she meets Felix Francis. He became a novelist. He spent many years as a physics teacher, helping his father, crime writer and jockey Dick Francis, with research in his spare time. After his father's death, Francis became a full-time author in his own right. His 16th novel is Hands Down, about a conspiracy in the world of horse racing. Here he speaks to Georgina more about his life and work. 
the first book was published when I was eight years old. I have to say, I didn't read it then. I, I waited a, a few years until my father thought it was suitable for me to read. But I then read them, I caught up and, of course, grew up in it. I mean, it was I grew up in what I considered to be the greatest fiction factory of the 20th century. And as you say, discussions were... You know, how much explosive is required to blow up an aeroplane? I mean, if the if MI5 were listening, I'd, I'd be in trouble. But uh, those sort of questions. And I did a, quite a lot of the, the writing of the scientific bits. I mean, I, the first bit I wrote in a, in a Dick Francis novel was when I was uh, a 17-year-old A-level physics student. And my father wanted to, to uh, have a remote control bomb to, to blow up a light aeroplane. And... Uh, with my science, with my physics teacher and I in the physics department at Mill Hill School, we actually built it. And we're not with the explosive, but just the remote control bit. And it was all magnets and solenoids and everything because it was the, you know, pre-transistor age, really. I mean, it was, uh, this was back in the 1960s. And, uh, but it worked and uh, it went in the book. So I considered myself an author ever since then, really. <laughs> I really, really want to know about those early years because your father was the... Sin- I mean, how many books did he write? Well, there were two biographies, one of his own and one of Lester Piggott. And then there were 39 mysteries, one of which was a book of short stories. So 41 in the end. And it was uh, it was an absolute delight. But my mother and father worked on them together, and it's the worst kept secret in publishing that the Dick Francis books were Dick and Mary Francis. Uh, but my mother refused to have her name on the cover. She, Why? Well, she said that the Dick Francis was a name. I mean, my father took to writing after the incident of Devon Lock, which collapsed in the nineteen fifty six Grand National, an incident which thrust the the name Dick Francis from the back pages to the front pages of the of the newspapers. Tell and, us what happened there. Well, he was riding a horse that belonged to uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And the Grand National is four and a half miles, and they'd done all but the last 40 yards. And the horse, my father says he was spooked by the noise because everyone was cheering. You know, the Queen Mother wasn't long after the... She'd been widowed and not, not long after the war. And... and uh, he said that the noise was unbelievable. And you see on the film, the horse pricks his ears. And at that point, just he's frightened by the noise and everything stops and down he goes on his belly and slides along. I mean, how dad didn't come off him, I don't know. But I mean, he stood up again. But by that stage, he had been passed and his muscles were all pulled. So it was the most dramatic Loss. I mean, uh, to do a Devon Lock has gone into the vernacular now, you know, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And uh, that is really why he started writing, because his agent at the time, a man called John Johnson, uh, was Celia Johnson's brother, and he said to uh, my father, uh, have you thought of writing an autobiography? I mean, nowadays all sportsmen write autobiographies, but in, the, in those days it was rare. And he said, this Devonlock incident is a wonderful peg to hang a, a, your life story on. So Dad set about writing it. And um, it came out, I mean, racing is called the sport of kings. But because he'd ridden for the Queen and for the Queen Mother, he got permission from the Queen Mother to call it the sport of queens. I mean, as my father says, perhaps you wouldn't call it that these days. But it came out in 1957, the year after the Devonlock incident. And Dad had retired from racing because he had a very bad fall and ruptured his spleen and and broke his wrist badly so he had to stop race riding and then 
John Juno, who was the uh, editor of the Sunday Express, heard about this, that the book was being written, so he thought Dad must be able to put a few words together, so he offered him a job as a racing correspondent for the Sunday Express. I mean, nowadays all newspaper sports writers are ex-sportsmen, but in those days, you know, sportsmen and journalists were very separate. You were one of us or one of them. Mm. And my father went from being one of us to one of them in, in the changing room, you know, into the into the press box. And uh, But he went on doing that for 17 years, never missed a deadline. I mean, John Junior had Danny Blanchflower writing about football and, and Dennis Compton writing about cricket and Dick Francis writing about racing. And uh, it was in the era when newspapers were far more important perhaps than than they are today with so much television and radio available. So, And that's what taught him to write. He said he, he taught... And then in 1962, the, my father said that uh, it didn't pay as well as being a top jockey, so the cars were beginning to knock, he said, and the <laughs> carpets were wearing out, and he had two boys to educate. So uh, he uh, uh, wrote a story, and um, that was dead certain. And then there was one every year for the rest of the millennium. Which is quite, quite extraordinary. So I want to get a feeling of you and your brother growing up in this extraordinary atmosphere. Well, we didn't think it was that extraordinary, to be honest. I mean, he was just my dad, you know. He used to go to the races a lot, but he was home a lot. I mean, my mother used to uh, say, your father's back, which meant clear everything up quickly on a Saturday afternoon. And... I mean, he was just our dad, really. I mean, yes, it was quite strange that everywhere you went, people knew of him. And certainly there were people in our house who came to to parties and to dinner parties and so on, which you perhaps wouldn't expect. I mean, one thing I remember clearly is that my mother was in the theatre before she met my father and uh, was in the repertory theatre in Hereford just after the Second World War. And... uh, she got to know a lot of the actors. It was a very good repertory theatre, and um, they used to come to our house a lot. So our house was very theatrical. I remember, you know, watching the very first episodes of Dad's Army with Arthur Lowe as Captain Mannering on a Saturday night. And then on Sunday, Arthur Lowe would be in our house having Sunday lunch with my parents because he was a very good friend of my parents. And I, as a child, I always wondered why he wasn't wearing his uniform. <laughs> Uh, and and yes, we did things. I mean, the sadness of the death of Her Majesty the Queen reminds me back that, you know, my father wrote road book for her and I met the Queen, the Queen Mother, first time when I was about four years old. And I was talking to Princess Anne earlier this year and she said, when did we first meet? And I said, well, I was four and I think you were five and a half. And she said, oh, thank you very much. And But we, I've known the royal family and I feel very sad for them. But uh, I also revel in the fact that we had the Queen for so long. I mean, my mother was only a year older than her. My mother's been dead now for 22 years. So we had the Queen for a long time and we should celebrate that. Well, absolutely. Oh. Tell us a little bit more about your interaction with her, as I guess, as a racehorse owner. Well, I... I didn't know her. I knew the Queen Mother quite well. I used to ring up her private secretary and ask whether, you know, is she in? And he'd say yes. And I said, would she like a visitor? Yes, she'd love one. So I used to go and have tea at Clarence House. And that was a real joy. But the Queen I got to know in later years, my father used to 
go to the royal box at Ascot, not during Royal Ascot, but for the Queen Elizabeth, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Diamond Day at the end of July. And he would always take the copy of the new book to give to the Queen Mother there, and we would be guests in the royal box. And I remember I went with him once, and the Queen was standing at the top of the stairs with her hands on her hips, saying, well, where's my copy? So we had to, um, thereafter, we always took two copies, one for the Queen and one for the Queen Mother, and that went on for many years. I mean, she was, she was a lovely, lovely lady, and I will miss her hugely. There was uh, an incident in the Royal Box once. The Queen Mother, this was back in the, the late 1990s, so um, the Queen Mother died in 2002. So this must have been you know, 1998 or so. The Queen Mother had just had cataract operations on both eyes, and we were sat having tea in the royal box, and there was my father and my mother and the Queen Mother, and then there was me, and then there was the Queen. So you might say I had a Queen on each arm. (laughs) And the Queen Mother was leaning forward to my mother and father, saying, don't you love this new service, you know, holding a plate up with a a lovely gold rim and the, the Ascot crown in the middle? And the Queen... I mean, we all do this to our parents, and she did it to her mother as well. She leaned down to me and very quietly whispered in my ear, we've had it for 10 years, but she's been unable to see it. <laughs> and she reveled in this. She loved this. And she was, she loved, you know, very fond of, of all the, the family, and uh, she will be much missed. But uh, I still think that 96 was a good innings. Absolutely. I mean, you know our new king too, don't you? Well, I've been fortunate enough to to meet the king on several occasions when he was Prince of Wales. And uh, I'm glad to say that I can count him as a fan of my books. And especially uh, the new queen is a huge fan, of course, being involved very much in horse racing. And now to the world of aviation. According to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the world's largest aerospace company, Boeing, put people over profit. In a separate blow to Boeing, Airbus SE won a deal to supply 40 jets worth around $4.8 billion to China's Southern Airlines. This comes after a deal worth $37 billion for the same kind of jets from four Chinese airlines this July, giving Airbus a clear lead over Boeing on the Chinese aviation market. Joining Georgina to discuss is Greg Waldron, Asia Managing Editor at Flight Global, based in Singapore. Certainly, it's been a difficult uh, two weeks for Boeing. Um, you know, they really can't seem to catch a break. I mean, with uh, Dennis Muhlenberg and Boeing at the time of, you know, the two crashes, um, it's, 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 they, they, they really didn't manage that message very well. And that led to a lot of... Um, you know, it was a really difficult time for them in the sense that, you know, there was a real safety issue with the aircraft, and it's basically perceived as concealing it, you know, really hiding the true nature of the aircraft. While they were still, they understood that it was MCAS, but they didn't really want to come forth about it. So it was a very, diff- it was a very difficult position for them. And of course, it was very dangerous for passengers, as it turned out. And I mean, so is that a, a fair accusation that they did put profit over people? Well, certainly, if you look at the, you know, the statements that came out of Boeing, you know, the emails and so forth, there was this huge pressure with the 737 MAX program to really minimize the cost of upgrading from the 737-800 to the MAX. I mean, the number one program directive was, and this was, you know, using the you know, terminology of Boeing employees, was that 
airlines would not need to pay um, for simulator time to transfer to the new jet. And that would be a huge cost savings for airlines. So really it was a lot of it was very seen as being very much about money. And um, that was why, you know, this has been such an epic, uh, you know, catastrophe for Boeing. And how likely is it to impact Boeing's reputation going forward? Well, I think it's certainly, you know, had a major impact on the reputation. Now, I think they're really working to, you know, fix that reputation. The 737 MAX is back in service now in most of the world except for China. Um, And I think they've really worked to, like, you know, manage that and really, you know, keep things, you know, moving forward. I mean, of course, there's other issues now with, you know, the pandemic and so forth affecting their supply chain. But yeah, the reputation definitely took a hit and will take you know some years for it to fully recover. Mm. And do you think that that is in any way part of this uh, decision by China to go with Airbus rather than Boeing? Ah, the Airbus uh, thing in China is very interesting. There's a few different elements in here. The, last week, the meeting with Boeing and the CAAC occurred on the 14th, but a day later, um, Dave Calhoun, the CEO of Boeing, was saying, look, we're remarketing aircraft to China. Um, the aircraft is still ground there. He was very pessimistic about China, even though he'd known this meeting ostensibly to get the aircraft airborne again in China, the 737 MAX airborne again had taken place. And then, of course, the day after that, China sanctioned the head of Boeing Defense, a guy named Ted Colbert, and the guy in charge of uh, Raytheon Technologies, Gregory Hayes. And Raytheon Technologies, of course, is a huge corporation with you know Pratt & Whitney, Honeywell, all sorts of products that go on to Chinese aircraft. So it's been a very... Um, weird and murky time, very mixed messages from, you know, the Chinese market. Um, and as far as Airbus goes, I mean, yeah, I mean, Boeing, uh, China's been leading very much to Airbus, at least in the last few years. And, um, you know, it's really not a huge surprise. The other thing that people fail to realize, too, is the A320neo, which is the plane that was ordered, is actually produced in China as well. So from a Chinese perspective also, this would you, this could be seen as kind of keeping the jobs at home, building the aircraft. And I mean, it's not the first deal, as you say, that there's been considerable business recently, but particularly in July when Airbus uh, netted a deal for four chi- from four Chinese airlines. Yeah, that was an epic deal and that was an epic blow to Boeing. And it was it's very unusual for, you know, Boeing or Airbus to come out and, um, you know, complain after something happens. But Boeing actually issued a statement after that saying, look, you know, we're the victim of, you know, um, you know, the geopolitical problems. And, uh, you know, they were really, you know, quite upset about that because that basically locked them out of the China market for some years. So, yeah, the Ch- and China, of course, the 737 MAX is not flying in China. They haven't taken deliveries for a long time. And, of course, it gets into that whole broader, you know, geopolitical relationship between the U.S.-China over issues such as Taiwan and, you know, many other issues between the two countries right now. Yeah. I mean, we're saying that this is all a win for Airbus over Boeing. But in fact, Airbus recorded fewer orders than Boeing last year. Um, that's correct. Yeah. Boeing had a pretty good year for orders last year. But again, you know, China is seen as the key market for or was seen as the key market for aviation. I think perceptions are certainly starting to change now. Um, in the 2010s, I mean, China accounted for a quarter of uh, monthly aircraft deliveries. And that was a consistent thing. I mean, they were one quarter. So it's a really big market. It's still seen as a very important market. And the fact that Boeing is, you know, locked out of that market, um, you know, or seems to be for the time being, is a very challenging strategic issue for Boeing. And it's certainly, you know, positive for Airbus. Monocle's October issue includes a style special where we check in with industry players, meet the dapper gents of the great American South and offer seasonal looks for your wardrobe. 
plus tips from London's talented tailor, Bianca Saunders. Better to have a longer sleeve and not to be too short. And then whether you want your shirt to like show underneath your jacket is another consideration that I look at for a good suit. We also hit the streets of Rio de Janeiro ahead of the presidential elections in Brazil to see why divisions have flourished in the country's second largest city. The whole Brazilian cultural market, theatre, poetry, even the media was deeply wounded by the Bolsonaro administration. Now I can be a little optimistic. I guess that's about to come to an end. Plus our regular roundup of culture cuts, hotel openings and restaurant reviews to shape your schedule for autumn. Order your copy of Monocle's October issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Listening to the Curator Weekly Highlight Show here on Monaco 24. For Monaco Design Extra this week, we speak with the co-founders of Design Fair, Material Matters. It tells Monaco about its inaugural edition, which is held at the Barge House at Oxo Tower Wharf. We kind of spotted a gap. Uh, London Design Festival used to have four major fairs. Um, for various reasons, that had become one major fair. And we felt it needed something else. We came up with it during lockdown and we thought it was important that rather than just bringing a lot of stuff, albeit good stuff, into a room, that if we were going to do anything, we needed to create something that had a sense of purpose. Obviously, I had this podcast, which had gathered an audience, which was lovely over the last three and a half years. So it seemed to make sense to base it around materials and material intelligence. As a keen observer of how design is translated, I think despite the reduction in the number of events I think the quality of the events also needed improving as well I feel fairly qualified to say that and it's not really in disrespect to others but I think the industry over the last few years sort of slightly ate into itself became competitive obviously with the pandemic the market has changed but I think there are just different and better ways of doing things other than trying to kind of get to the lowest price and to kind of secure the biggest names in a design fair Material Matters is a really good opportunity to strike a slightly different chord. It's a commercial fair, it's there for architects and designers, and it features some big names. But we're trying to work as a community and we're trying to do exactly as Grant says, which is to be there for a purpose and to educate, engage, and to demonstrate the huge variety and importance of materials. I understand that you've got a box there with a couple of goodies or, or things that are going to be featured in the fair. Yeah, Could you? Just, yeah, William's brought stuff with him, which is very clever. <laughs> Great for audio. So we are working with a really interesting um, RCA tutor, actually, a guy called Akesh. And he, he works with Orange Pill. So we borrowed some of his um, materials, really just for, for a photo shoot that we did about six weeks ago. And uh, I just happened to be seeing today, but it's a really beautiful demonstration of the versatility and adaptability of a, a material. In this case, it's orange peel. Orange peel, I think in all senses, is generally discarded. One thing that's running through the whole of material matters is this notion of materials being a finite resource for the world. And, of course, the material intelligence and the science and the innovation behind material stories as well. I think with Arkash, he's got a beautiful presentation of a relatively simple process, but nonetheless, as simple as it looks, I know there's a huge amount of thought, work, design that goes into this product. And in his case, he's actually running a workshop during the fair, which is a really beautiful thing. So oranges will feature uh, as a very nice, accessible part of the fair as well. There's a lot of people doing things with waste, mainly fundamentally in the show. 
one could take any number of stories. One of my favourites is a company called Solid Wool that uses wool from the Herdwick sheep, which is found in the Lake Districts. Their wool is um, very coarse, different coloured. It was used in the carpet industry, but then it fell out of vogue. And actually, according to the creators, Justin and Hannah Floyd, farmers had taken to burning the fleeces rather than putting on the market because they were fundamentally losing money. So they've come up with a material, it's been on the market a few years, but they came up with a material that combined this wool with bioresin to create material that's a little bit like fibreglass, and they've turned it into a chair that's now in production with Roger Oates called a Hembury chair. And there are lots of stories like that in the fair, I think. So it's about how we use materials, fundamentally the future of how we live, I think. Because I was struck by the fact that you're looking at um, some really wonderful uses of natural materials, but you're not afraid of the material innovation what people are doing and what could be on the market in a couple of years. I wonder if there were any other examples or, or makers who you thought this is going to really change how we, how we make or how we design. There's a material called Smile Plastics. I mean, I first started writing about it because I used to be a journalist sometime in the mid-90s. So it's been around a while, but I think it's really beginning to gain traction now. And that's using waste plastic, from, often from the food industry, turning it into sheet material that architects and designers can use for all sorts of things. We have somebody printing uh, in sand, 3D printing sand, to turn into, well, at the moment, furniture, but they're talking about applications in architecture and ultimately how you could use that material to get rid of a lot of the layers of architecture. So you could just use this 3D printed sand is their, their theory. This fair is taking place at the OXO barge tower over in, um, in the South Bank area. Indeed. So what is it about that site or what makes it a really nice home for this inaugural fair? Uh, there's lots of reasons why it's a really good home and there are some challenges with that building as well. But fundamentally there are challenges in putting design exhibitions in an v- interesting venue in London. There's a fundamental point there and there's a weakness in our ability to present engaging content. I hardly need to reference other cities that do design fairs very well, but um, palazzos we do not have access to and there isn't a large former industrial spaces that they used to be all those years ago. So the OXO is unique and actually most people that I've walked around there with over the last six, eight months have been completely surprised and almost everyone said, oh, I'm sure that London was full of these types of buildings many years ago, and quite frankly, there are none left, so it's an exception. And actually, the experience of visiting the building without anything in it is a really tactile, quite atmospheric experience. So it's a beautiful building. It's fading, very crumbly at the edges, but it provides a fantastic backdrop for design thinkers. In the context of where it is in London, we're fortunate enough to be working with the Oxo Tower, which has been established as a design location within the city for... 20 plus years so there's a whole lot of independent studios there and then of course it's uh, connected with the Bankside Design District which stretches really from around the National Theatre all the way to Borough Market and there's a whole lot of components to that programme as well so it taps into the structure of how the London Design Festival was designed to work which is to give people general locations within which to then go and discover elements within that district. I mean we wanted somewhere central and we also wanted somewhere that wasn't a conventional exhibition centre. We didn't want to put up a shell scheme. The options are fairly limited in that case. The Barge House is the perfect location, really. And actually, quite a lot of our thinking around the fair came out of that building. 
So each floor does something slightly different from the first floor, which is about people really, really experimenting with materials. The second floor, which is more of our learning space. The third floor is a marketplace. The fourth floor will have a talks program with people like Nigel Coates, Adam Nathaniel Furman, Naomi Cleaver, Andrew War, lots and lots of names. And it will have a lot of makers and designers who are working in a range of materials up there too. So we've tried to work with the grain of the building. Through making the podcast, what have you learned about design that has maybe shifted how you make a design fair happen or, or your approach to bringing all these elements together? I mean, I think it gave us a philosophical framework around which to start, that notion of material intelligence. So in other words, if you understand materials, then you have more of an understanding of how things are made. If you understand how things are made, then frankly, you're less likely to throw something away. So I think that was the kind of starting point. And from there, I mean, obviously, we approached lots of people who've been on the podcast, but we also went out and approached other people and people, frankly, I'd quite like to have on the podcast. So, yeah, it gave us a starting point, I'd say. As we like to do, we end the show with a lovely recipe, this time from the author of Pasta Granny's Comfort Cooking. They share a recipe that can't get much simpler. I'm Vicky Benison. I'm the creator of Pasta Granny's, and this recipe is from my second book called Pasta Granny's Comfort Cooking. And it's a wonderful, simple recipe. Get a packet of bucatini pasta, start cooking it, and... Get the most beautiful, luscious tomatoes you can find. And then you peel them by blanching them in hot water. Chop them up. Mix it up with some uh, grated garlic mixed in with a little salt. Mix in some torn basil leaves, the ones that have spent their life in the sun. Put that all mixed up on a plate into the sunshine and let it warm through for about 30 minutes. Then drain your pasta. Mix it in with the tomatoes. Throw in a little bit of pecorino cheese, and that's it. That is your your sun-cooked tomatoes with bucatini pasta. That's all we've got time on this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>